Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, if you watched last week's episode, you'll see I'm wearing the same shirt as I did last week, and that's because I'm shooting last week's and this week's back-to-back -back here, uh, because I am out and about. I am out of the country right now, as I'm, uh, as you are watching this, and, uh, I, hopefully you will have heard about that and seen some, uh, activity on that, but if not, that's where I'm at, and, uh, and I will be back next week. So, uh, let's go ahead and just get straight to it, uh, without any further ado. Here are your questions. Mark P. Your comment about peeling off layers of belief and thinking, how could I have ever believed X, got me to thinking more broadly. In a sense, a family is a cult, though not always destructive. The local community, school, and so on are similarly cults as they support beliefs and values common to their respective communities. I have found as I grow older that certain non-Scientology things I learned or came to believe earlier in my life have elicited a similar how-could-I response. I do think that much of this is the process of aging and maturing and or keeping up with the times on social changes that come about. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And of course, uh, as we go through life, our ideas and attitudes and opinions about things change all the time, as well they should. Because our experiences and the things that we learn in our education and the discoveries of things around us change. And we should be changing with those things. And also, I think some of what we might be talking about is hindsight bias, which is its own kind of logical fallacy or wrong-headed thinking where we uh, look back on the things that have happened to us in the past with what we know now, and we go, oh my god, I was so stupid, how could I have ever... And we don't grant ourselves the knowledge that, uh, or the, 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 you know, the, the ability to be ignorant then of what we know now. And so we blame ourselves for things that happened in the past that we could not have really done any other way or could not have known the consequences or ramifications or whatever that, you know, we're going to result from that thing that we did or believed or thought. And so we blame ourselves for things that we really are kind of blameless for in some, you know, in some ways. If you don't know about something on Tuesday and you act based on that ignorance, and then on Wednesday you learn, you know, that you should have known better, well, okay, then on Thursday you won't do that again. But you can't look back on what happened on Tuesday and go, oh God, I'm such a moron, why, you know? Now, if you had, now, of course, this is, that's hindsight bias, right? Now, of course, if you uh, had known about the thing on Tuesday and you went ahead and did it anyway, okay, well, now you're just being stupid, right? So I think it depends a little bit on the circumstances and the specifics of what's going on. But I think that life is a continuing, ongoing, educative process that we're all going through and we should all be learning something new every day. I think we should all be trying to help help each other out to learn new things every day and try to act on those things uh, in, in, in a better way, like try to be better today than we were yesterday, right? And not blame ourselves so much for what happened yesterday as try to learn from it so that tomorrow we don't do the same thing. And I think that's really all you can ask for the most part, you know, of anybody. BTC. How is it possible to have natural clears, let alone natural OTs. 
Let's grant that maybe someone is a natural clear, a prodigy or freak of nature. But the content of the OT levels was discovered by Hubbard alone for the first time ever, and by enduring great perils to himself. This was unprecedented in the entirety of history as he was the first one to brave the sizzle of the wall of fire. So if someone is a natural OT, they would have either discovered the OT contents by themselves, this would make them equal to Hubbard, unthinkable, or they would have received auditing in a past lifetime. Yet how could they have been audited on this as Hubbard's inexpendable research did not commence until the 1950s? Finally, if people really practiced Scientology in previous lives, how come there is no historical record of such a movement? We have records of even minute cults dating back millennia, but something as momentous as Scientology, man's only hope, surely would have left some records in the past somewhere. All right, well, yeah, natural clears are kind of prodigies or whatever. I don't know really what the explanation is for that. I kind of looked around a little bit and couldn't really find the HCLBs on it, uh, the bulletins, the Hubbard's writings on it. But, um, but as far as natural OTs, I've never heard of a natural OT, so I'm not really sure where this question's coming from. Um, however, there are past life OTs. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard discovered OT3 in 1967. And there are plenty of people in Scientology who were born after 1967 who theoretically could have done it last lifetime. As far as Scientology having existed uh, back earlier on this planet, Hubbard was very clear about the fact that Scientology has never existed anytime, anywhere, ever in this entire universe. So there is no earlier Scientology practice back in the day. There was, um, Hubbard talks about earlier practices of a remedial or a, you know, re rehabilitative or remedial nature, uh, like pictureology, where, where Thetans were, you know, spiritual beings were kind of running around ripping pictures off, mental image pictures off from other Thetans as though they're possessions that they carry around with them. And, hey, you can't have my pictures. Yes, I'm taking your pictures, you know. And, uh, and so he talks about that kind of thing going on and how it wasn't particularly very helpful for, for Thetans back in the day. Um, so there's no, there is no reference to Scientology happening, you know, past or earlier than 1954 when, you know, 53 when Scientology first came around. Um, and as far as, uh, you know, if, now, now all that being said, as far as a natural OT goes, I mean, there is the idea that you could have not been here on Earth or in this sector of the galaxy back 76 million years ago when, when uh, you know, Lord Xenu did his deal. And, and everybody was rounded up from this sector of the universe and, and thrown in the volcanoes and implanted and, and gone through that horrible incident. If you weren't part of that, then you know, if you came to Earth somehow on some other way, some other track, and Hubbard did allow for the possibility of that, then that incident wouldn't be a thing that you would have to do. OT3 would not be a thing for you. Uh, and the whole body Thetans thing probably would be a little bit interesting. Um, but your body would still, if you're here on Earth and you were born here on Earth and you got a body here on Earth, then odds are those body Thetans are still there. And whether they're there because of OT3 or something else. I mean, this is where things get really, really weird and really logically like, what, what do I, how, how are you supposed to think about this? And I've not seen any clarification from Hubbard other than this idea that, that you could have skipped out on the OT3 incident, but I don't think you're going to skip out on all the body thetans, right? Because you got a body. 
and that body has body thetans in it and on it. So, you know, so that's still going to apply to you. So the other OT levels are still going to be applicable and you're still going to have to do them. So, you know, I don't know, but this is where things get really logically kind of weird and inconsistent. You have to start dreaming up answers and that's really all I could give you on this um, other than conjecture and pure just pull it out, my, you know, whatever kind of answer and I don't really want to go there. So that's about all I could really say about this, but feel free to ask me anything more if, if I'm not clear or if, there's, if it seems like there's something more specific about this that I might be able to help you with. Kiva Go. Hi Chris, loving the informal chats with other exes on the Sensibly Speaking podcast. I have a couple questions about two bits of terminology Jeffrey Augustine quotes in one of his posts. The church sees Sea Org members as coins that can be traded among orgs and then kicked to the curb when they weaken from age or infirmity. The Sea Org euphemism for this cruelty is called fitness boarding. Old and sick Sea Org members are fitness boarded, given $500 and then shown the door. My question is, did you ever use the term coins or see others doing so when talking to management about moving Sea Org members around the West US or even internationally? If so, can that term help as proof of human trafficking in court? Also, how many members approximately did you see get fitness boarded out of the Sea Org while you were in? The use of the term coins comes from a, a lecture, an executive lecture uh, that Hubbard gave in, I think, 1971 on the Apollo where he was talking about trading personnel from one organization to another and considering that the way it was an analogy that Hubbard was making where he said you have personnel and as an executive your job is to utilize those personnel and sort of imagined the org board or the organizing structure as a piano that you're playing and you have you know x number of resources employees people volunteers people that you have under you to utilize to play that piano and, and make it play a tune, right? And the coins, the idea of coins as an analogy was the idea of trading. So you might have Joe in Division 4, and he's been a staff member for 10 years, has a lot of training under his belt, maybe he's clear, and he's, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da qualifications. And he's worth, you know, three of these new guys that they just got in in the, in the public divisions who are relatively new Scientologists and staff members and they are not so experienced and they're not so trained and so you would you would imagine that uh, that coinage wise this guy Joe or whatever I said his name was he's worth three you know he's worth a three of these coins over here in a trade Okay, and that's the analogy that's made and that's not a human trafficking thing that's just personnel talk, you know, in terms of, uh, of an analogy that Hubbard was making. I didn't particularly see anything inherently destructive or, or uh, sinister in, in referring to people as, as coinage when you are assigning an arbitrary value to them uh, from a personnel or I guess you would say a human resources uh, perspective, right? Um, you know, and I know, I mean, I, I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't think people are coins and I don't think they can be reduced down to such a simplistic uh, measure of their worth as people, but 
having dealt with personnel you know, for a number of years when I was in the Sea Org it is, and, in, and on staff, it is certainly true that some staff members are more valuable than other staff members. And you, you, know, you can use this analogy as a way to, to talk about moving them around without being all weird and sinister about it. Um, now, as far as the fitness boarding goes, that is a formal process of reviewing somebody's qualifications for the Sea Org. This is only done in the Sea Org. And it's done specifically to see if something has come up that has uh, shown them to now be not qualified for the Sea Org, where maybe earlier in the past they were, or maybe they slipped through the cracks when they shouldn't have and they were never qualified to be in the Sea Org in the first place. So every single person who leaves the Sea Org in a standard authorized fashion is given a fitness board, whether they're old or infirm or not, right? Everybody. I got a fitness board. Uh, because if you want to leave, you're clearly not fit to be there, right? You're not qualified because you kind of have to want to be there in order to work in the Sea Org. So, um, so I, you know, so I've seen hundreds of, of fitness boards, maybe thousands. Um, I didn't, I didn't sit on them. I did a couple of them myself, but, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't sit on thousands of them or something. Generally, it's the personnel people who, who deal with the fitness boards. And, um, and that's how that, that's how that works. Swift Master Quickness. What is the Church of Scientology's stance on other religions? In your latest interview, it was mentioned that during the holidays, Jewish members were targeted during Christmas and Christians targeted during Hanukkah to keep up stats. You also mentioned some time back that Sea Org members have Christmas parties. Do Scientologists not realize the irony of celebrating other religious holidays they find bunk? Since, you know, Scientology is the one true path and all? All right, well, as far as other religions go, Scientologists tend to have a tolerant but, you know, sort of ugh, attitude about other people's religions, right? If they really think about it much at all, which they don't tend to really do a whole lot. Scientologists are very focused on what they're doing and on um, getting themselves and other people up the Scientology bridge. And they sort of look at other people's religions as just another... Uh, the, the word they would say would be aberration or just another false, you know, narrative that other people are following uh, that they need to, you know, let go of eventually by getting onto the Scientology bridge and doing those services and through the enlightenment that Scientology counseling offers, they will come to their own realizations that it's all bunk. As far as holidays go, though, and I did uh, I did a video on, on Scientology holidays, but as far as um, you know, Christmas and, and New Year's and Halloween and these kind of things. You know, I think we live in a world, especially in the United States, where it doesn't require a whole lot of religious belief in order to celebrate those holidays. I mean, I'm an atheist. I celebrate Christmas. I'm not celebrating the, the birth of Christ when I do that. I'm celebrating a, a, a day that that's set aside to recognize peace on earth, goodwill to all men, you know, there's like, and, and Christmas, of course, and Yuletide and, and the, the coming of the winter solstice. I mean, these are way predate Christianity and Christmas. So, um, so same with Easter, right? And Halloween is kind of its own little fun thing because you get to dress up. So it's kind of the fun of it and just the experience of it, I think, that Scientologists get into as much as anybody else. Um, I don't think they really look at it as some big hypocrisy thing, especially since a lot of Scientologists come from Christian households. They were, that's where they were raised. Their families are Christian still. They have Christian values. And the Scientologists don't sit around poo-pooing that or trying to create you know, trouble with their family over those things. For the most part, they're not 
you know, they don't get militant about it, and uh, nor should they, you know. So uh, I never once, in all the years that I was in, I never once saw anybody really overtly ragging on other religions, except in times of of stress or where there was like a, a uh, religious terrorist, right? Like Islamic terrorism or Christian terrorism. Yes, both exist. Yes, both have occurred. And when those happen and, and people are killing other people in the name of religion, Scientologists would absolutely roll their eyes and be like, God, these people, you know, they, ugh, they really need Scientology. And that's about as far as that would go, you know. So um, that's what I can say about that. E. David Hershey. Every week I enjoy Mike Rinder's Thursday Funnies, a sampling of Scientology's internal marketing efforts. Most of them are pretty obvious. Come to this potluck dinner and we'll hit you up for more money. Come watch this video of an event held somewhere else and we'll hit you up for more money. But the one that confuses me is the prosperity seminars. The advertisements look like typical get-rich-quick schemes. Flashy and outrageous, pie-in-the-sky numbers, grow your business, boost your profits, prosperity. Is this a sales pitch for the Scientology management techniques or is it tools to make someone a better FSM? I appreciate you explaining them. They just seem so crass and materialistic. Oh wait, this is Scientology, silly me. Well, you asked if it's promotion of Scientology's management techniques or whether it's to get FSMs or Scientologists to bring new people in, field staff members is what FSM stands for. And the answer is both, actually. These prosperity seminars that are held in churches are done in order to try to get Scientologists to um, become more efficient, better focused, and more productive in their lives or at their jobs so that they can give more money to Scientology. Okay, I mean, then in the end, that's really what it's all about, is paying for your bridge, and your bridge is expensive, and it's going to cost you, you know, money to get up there. I mean, we all know how much it costs. Scientologists are well aware of that, and they are willing to pay that in order to get what they think is going to be immortality and personal spiritual freedom. So they attend these seminars because if they feel stuck or not moving or they don't know what to do in order to get that money, the seminars are supposed to be a way for them to get some help so they can figure it out. And that's really kind of what that's about. I think it's crazy and extremely weird that a religion is doing that. But the earlier problem is not that they're holding those seminars. It's that they're charging so much to begin with and that, that you know, the whole thing really is predicated on a, on a money-making scam. So that's, you know, that's really the explanation behind those prosperity seminars. And, uh, you know, it's kind, of, it, it's kind of an honest effort to help by people who've got money to try to show people who don't have money how to get it. You know, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the flow of it and, and the intention of it within the world of Scientology. But it's all about money, money, money to give it to the church. And that's the real problem with that whole model. Uh, so, you know, there you go. It's time for Flash Answers. Jan, if I told an auditor that I stole an apple and went back to similar incidents and finally told him or her that the earliest time I did that was in the Garden of Eden while I was living there with Eve, would that overt be seriously handled? Or does the e-meter register when you are making fun of the auditor? 
Well, if an auditor thought that you were actually being sarcastic or making fun of them, they would certainly take actions. Uh, mainly, the action they would take would be to ask if there was a withhold that was missed. In other words, what have you done that you're not talking about? Because that would be the only reason that somebody would be out of session and having their head somewhere else than in their case and talking to the auditor uh, easily and comfortably about what has happened to them in the past. If you were to seriously suggest that you were in the Garden of Eden and that happened, the auditor would really have no choice but to run that. And if you really believed it, he would really run it. And, uh, you know, and if, you, if, if it was all a big joke, then you guys would both laugh and that would be that. And he could then ask you the question again, is there an earlier similar time you, you know, stole an apple? And you'd get a real answer. Um, Scientology auditors are not there to tell you what is or isn't true as, what, as to what happened to you millions or billions or trillions of years ago. Because as far as they're concerned, anything and everything happened to you. So they're going to take anything you say in stride. Shorty Pants 1215. In addition to the answer you recently gave about disabled people seeking auditing, you mentioned that if a person is not able to hold the cans in an auditing session, there are wristbands and foot pedals that can be used. I would like to know, what if the person is deaf? The person being audited could use the foot pedals or the wristbands in order to speak in sign language, but what about the auditor? Are there any auditors that speak sign language? Various forms, not just ASL? Or would the session just be the auditor and the person being audited writing down questions and answers and just passing things back and forth to communicate? Thank you for all you are doing. Well, you're welcome. And uh, as far as uh, deaf people go, I never actually saw it. I think I heard of one person one time being audited. Uh, and that person, uh, I mean, you could do it with notes, right? The person could sit there and write down the answers to the questions that they were being asked as far as going through various incidents, but that would be rough. You know, that would be very, very difficult. Um, and I've never seen an auditor who, who spoke sign language, who you know, signed questions to a, to a pre-clear. So I'm really not sure how they would deal with this in, uh, in real life. But um, I think for non-metered auditing, you know, where you didn't have to hold the cans, you could run Dianetics on the guy all day, all night, and he could sit there and sign whatever his answers are, or he could write down his answers and tell the auditor after he had, you know, relived or re-gone through the, the incident, and they could, they could sort of fumble their way through it. I think it could be done, but it would be, uh, it would be interesting to see that. Amanda Burke. Who pays for your uniforms? And are you expected to return them if you route out? Do they then get reused? Are the jackets dry cleaned? The uniforms are the property of the Sea Org and they do expect them back. Most of the time they get used up and people just throw them away. But if you do have reusable parts when you route out or you leave, then they'll take them back. And um, the dry cleaning is on you <laughs> for the most part. There was a short period of time where the orgs were paying for dry cleaning for the uniforms, but uh, orgs being you know, what they are on such shoestring budgets, that, that sort of thing tends to go in and out. And, uh, and it's always a problem getting new uniform parts and keeping the uniform parts that you have uh, you know, in decent shape. Okay, that's our show for this week, guys. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I hope you found this educational, informational, and informative, and uh, entertaining, I should say. Um, and I will see you guys again soon. Bye-bye.